Um, so we were looking at Redemption, and then we'll get to some um, songs and sonnets, but just because we started uh, the Herbert poem Redemption. Do people still have copies? Sort of, kind of. Can you look on? Only because it's um, about some of the issues that we looked at in Dunn. Um, and in particular, um, the religious aspect um, of some of the Protestant poets that we're reading, they're not all going to be Protestant, but um, this is a period of um, an intense ferment in ideas of what Protestantism um, is and should be in England. The English Revolution, which is on its way, the, Pur the Puritan Revolution, um, which is going to begin in 1642, but which there are rumblings of um, as early as, um, well, as early as Henry VIII, but really um, in the 1590s, um, is a revolution about exactly what it means to be Protestant and whether England really is a Protestant country or not. And um, the basic, the most basic claim that Protestants are making is that, um, from Luther onward, is that the final authority for um, salvation and for belief comes from the human mind or human soul or human consciousness or inner light. That is, that um, the church, in particular the Catholic Church, doesn't have the authority to tell you um, what the truth is. And um, just because the church says it doesn't mean it's true. Um, the church actually, there's a huge debate that goes on between, essentially between Catholics and Protestants in the 16th century as to whether it's right or not to translate the Bible into a language, uh, into a modern language, um, in particular in England, into English, um, whether people should be allowed to read the Bible or not. This is a debate that actually goes on in the Catholic Church up through the 1960s. Um, the permissibility of um, Christians reading the Bible. Um, the reason, the argument against allowing people to read the Bible is that they, the Bible is difficult and subtle and misleading in um, various ways unless you know what you're doing. Um, and if you don't know what you're doing, um, you will be persuaded by the devil when the devil quotes scripture. So the devil quoting scripture, that's actually something that happens um, in the Bible, is when the devil um, takes Jesus up to see the four corners of the world, which is why we um, talk about the four corners of the world. Um, he quotes scripture to try to tempt Jesus. He says, the Bible says this, um, so why don't you do it? Because that's what the Bible says. And um, so the fact that something is in the Bible can be misleading if you are not trained to understand how to understand it. Um, that's the Catholic argument um, in a very, very tiny nutshell. And so the idea is um, the Bible is the final authority, <coughs> but it's the Bible as interpreted by the church 
um, the church established by Jesus when he says to Peter, thou art Peter, and upon this rock I establish my church, the name Peter meaning rock in um, Greek, hence our word petrify, to turn into a rock, hence the French name Pierre, which is French for Peter, but it also means stone. Um, so the Protestant view is, no, the church became corrupt um, because they had absolute power to interpret the law. They interpreted it in a way that those who had power in the church um, could become um, wealthy and powerful with by terrorizing the people to whom they are interpreting the word of God. Um, and the Protestant view was, no, the word of God is the word of God, and people should be allowed to hear it and understand it and interpret it through their own conscience. And the idea was, again, simplifying that the conscience, that we have consciences, those consciences, um, Milton calls, has God talk about conscience as an umpire that um, allows for um, understanding what is right and what isn't right. Um, that we're endowed with consciences, and by using our conscience, we can um, understand um, and believe and love God um, by reading his words. So the Protestant idea is um, essentially that faith is something that belongs to an individual, um, and that the church is made up of the faithful, um, but made up of the faithful because they have faith um, rather than because they do what the church tells them. So depending on how radically Protestant you are, and there's more or less radical Protestantism, depending on how radically Protestant you are, um, you will give some or no authority to um, uh, church um, um, officials. So the most radical Protestants see no authority whatever in um, church officials, in um, um, ministers or deacons or presbyters um, or whatever. Less radical Protestants, those who are closer to thinking there could be a way of reforming um, Catholicism, um, do see church officials as having power and having um, um, insight and knowledge that they can be helpful with. Um, and the Anglican Church, um, the Church of England, is closest in that sense to a Catholic view that, um, that ordained ministers um, actually um, do have a lot of special knowledge and even a lot of special power, in particular the power of transubstantiation, that is turning the bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ. Do people know what that is, the Eucharist? Is this, does anyone not know? Um, okay, so at the Last Supper, um, the biblical story of the Last Supper, this is something that's going to be very interesting to Herbert. Um, the biblical story of the Last Supper, um, Jesus knows that it's basically the Last Supper with his disciples. He says, one of you will betray me. Um, he also says, as they're... Um, eating and drinking, he says, um, this is my body you eat, um, this is my blood you drink. Um, what he says in the Latin um, version is hoc est corpus meum, this is my 
body. Um, we get the magic term hocus pocus from a mishearing of that. Um, hoc est corpus meum becomes hocus pocus. And the reason it becomes hocus pocus is that because Jesus says, this bread is my body, this, this wine is my blood, and you shall remember me when you eat bread and drink wine. Remember me in the future um, because the bread is my body and the wine is my blood. Um, what he meant by that um, seems um, um, understandable metaphorically. That is, he is the source of all these things. But um, it might also be a mistake, um, and this is the view of, of this is where fundamentalism gets its purchase. Always, it might be a mistake to think that when God speaks, He's not speaking literally. If you say, "Oh, God doesn't really mean it," who are you to decide that God doesn't really mean it? So the um, this becomes part of um, a Catholic ritual, the ritual of the consecration of the host um, or of the Eucharist. And the idea is that you go to church and the priest holds up the um, bread and the wine, and he recites those lines from the Bible, hoc est corpus meum. And then you are given um, the host, you're given the Eucharist, you eat and drink, and what the priest says to you is the body of Christ um, giving you the bread, and as you sip the wine, it's the blood of Christ. So at that point, what's happening is you are taking within you the body and the blood of Christ the Redeemer. Um, and um, the idea of hocus pocus is that for some member of the church watching this happen, here's this person um, who has these supernatural powers. And the supernatural power in particular that he has is to hold up a wafer, a piece of bread, which is in the form of a wafer, and to say some words. And as soon as he says those words, that piece of bread becomes the body of Christ. Um, so it's hocus corpus meum becomes hocus pocus, which is, look, look what I've done. It's magic. I've turned this into the body of Christ. Um, so. One debate among the Protestants is, um, are you really consuming the body and blood of Christ during the Eucharist, during the, um, um, the rite of the Eucharist? And um, it's a debate that we're going to see played out um, in some of the poems that we're reading. Um, again, I just want to say that, that one interesting fact about this is no one taking the bread, the wafer in their mouths, or taking the wine in their mouths imagines that what they're tasting is flesh or blood. Um, so the idea of transubstantiation is that it still looks like bread and still tastes like wine because its substance has changed, but not its appearances. So that's an idea that goes back to Aristotle, um, which is the difference between what Aristotle calls substance and accident. Um, the substance is what we would now call something like um, the subatomic matter that it's made of. Um, our modern physics comes out of the Aristotelian idea of substance. It's what stands under sub 
stance. It is the thing that stands under all our experience of something. So the substance, accidents are things like color, temperature, um, reflexivity, hardness, softness, and all of that. Um, those are the accidents of a thing. The substance of the thing we would now call its atomic structure, something like that. So the idea of transubstantiation is that even though it's still bread and wine in the way our senses perceive it, it has a different and now holy substance. Wait, so, so are accidents like mind-dependent qualities? Um, well, that's not how Aristotle describes them, but I think that's a reasonable um, um, translation okay. of what accidents are. Um, something Locke might call secondary qualities, yeah. um, which is going to be a little bit later and which is partly going to come out of these arguments. Um, but you could say um, the way things reveal themselves to our senses. So accidents mean you know, you're not getting a truth about this thing. There is no truth about whether water is wet or um, wood is hard. Water is wet to us. That's how we experience water is as wetness. Um, if you look at a molecule of water, you know, a single molecule of H2O, is that wet? What would it mean for it to be wet? Um, what it means for something to be wet is somehow that it kind of smears over you when you, I mean, part of being wet is that if you move it, it leaves a trace and it kind of smear and then it'll dry up. But a single molecule of water won't do that. That's what a bunch of molecules of water do. So that's how we experience water in the aggregate. But you could say the substance of water, this is, again, speaking very loosely, is H2O, just molecule after molecule after molecule of H2O with very weak bonding between those molecules. Um, so um, substance is what God sees things are made of. Accidents are what, how we experience them. So the accidents of the um, Eucharist don't change, according to Catholic doctrine, um, but the substance changes. Now the question is, does that make a difference? Yeah? Um, where does Aristotle talk about substance and accident? Do you recall? Um, pretty much everywhere. Mm -hmm. um, the, probably the first place to go is, because this is um, it's actually pretty fascinating. Um, the, the history of these ideas is very fascinating. Um, the first place to go would be um, the categories. Um, because the idea is also substance is subject. So that a way of thinking about it is um, the subject of a sentence versus the predicate of a sentence. So the subject is, let's say, water. And then what do we know about water? It's wet. So water is whatever water is. We, know, we may know nothing about it until things are said about it, like it's wet, it's cool, it's thirst quenching. There are all sorts of things we can say about water. All of those things, however, are accidents. Water is the subject, and the subject for Aristotle and the substance are um, pretty much the same thing. Um, the th subject means the thing thrown under. Um, that is, if you look past everything, what you will find is what has been thrown there first until all these predicates, these things said about it, come up. So anyhow, this is just to, just to say that there's an argument now, for example, as to whether here's bread and wine, and a priest says now it's the substance of um, Christ's body and blood. And 
to you, the communicant, it still in every way seems to be bread and wine. So has the priest done something magical by saying, by, by transubstantiating it? Or should we see it instead? I mean, I'm going to skip. There, there's an idea, um, a kind of compromise idea called consubstantiality, which is that its substance is both bread and body, both wine and blood. Um, but there's also an idea of, um, called memorialization, which is just remember that this is, um, that Christ is the source of these things. The less you see the priest as being able to change bread and wine into body and blood, the less power you give to the priest, the less supernatural power you give to a priest, to um, a representative of the original. And the more it's on you, the more it's about your remembering that this was, that Jesus gave up his life to give us a means of living. And the bread and wine would stand for um, a means of living. Um, the more you think um, that the priest has done something, the more you will accept the doctrine that you're taught rather than your own conscience. But the basic idea then in the Protestant Revolution is that conscience and individual thinking um, is how you interpret the Bible. You read the Bible, you think about what it means, you think about what you're supposed to um, do about it, and you, your individuality becomes very, very important because it's not what a majority says, it's how you think and how you feel. Um, the Anglican Church in England is trying to substitute, to a large extent, tries to substitute um, a new church, which acts kind of like the Catholic Church, but it's an English church. It derives its power from the king of England, who rules by divine right, rather than by the bishop of Rome, that is to say the pope, who also presumably ruled by divine right. But it's an alternative um, uh, divine right um, um, descent from God. And so the radical Protestants say no the English church is just as corrupt as the Catholic church was, and they protest against the, what they call the pseudo-Protestantism of the English church um, for more radical idea that it's all in the individual conscience that things matter. Um, so what happens, and this is here, what, um, what happens in the Reformation, as it's called, what happens in Protestantism, and this is really very basic, um, is that people are um, thrown into a kind of self-analysis um, that isn't necessary and probably isn't appropriate um, for a lot of Catholic thinking. Um, and in particular, what they think is that salvation comes, well, so let me, let me give you one other distinction. This is not what this course is going to be about, but it is on the minds of a lot of these writers. So there's one other distinction, which is salvation by works versus salvation by faith. 
And so salvation by works is if you do a lot of good things, um, you'll be saved. Um, doing good is the way to get saved. Salvation by faith is believing in God, believing and understanding the sacrifice of Christ. That's where salvation comes from. And one, the political reason for emphasizing salvation by faith rather than salvation by good works is that the Catholic Church defined good works as giving money to the Catholic Church. Um, so good works becomes um, a really powerful um, lever into people's wallets. Um, if you think you're going to be saved by giving money to the church, you know, I mean, the same thing happens now when it turns out that, that there are all these charities, you know, people think they're giving money to Haiti or the Philippines and they're giving money to charities that have 90% overheads. So you give um, $100 to some charity and $90 goes to its CEO and $10 finds its way to the Philippines. You think you've done something good by giving the $100 to this charity, but in fact, what's happened is that an evil person has managed to um, uh, use a horrible event um, in order to um, get money out of you that you might have found some other way of getting to the Philippines if um, there were better regulation, let's say. Um, so um, the Catholic Church is, um, according to Luther and according to a lot of people, in that position in the 15th century. Um, however, if you have salvation or what's called justification by faith, then it's not going to be a question of good works. It's going to be a question of intensity of belief that will bring you to salvation. Um, and so people are, there's a kind of inwardness that at least the Protestant poets feel compelled to by Protestant beliefs. That is, do I really believe? How do I know whether I really believe? Um, do I need to worry that um, my belief isn't real enough? Um, and so there's, it's natural to Protestants, or to at least Protestants of an intellectual bent, and Protestantism encourages this sort of thing, it's natural to engage in a lot of anguished self-analysis. And a lot of that anguished self-analysis, some of it is, some of the emphasis should be on the idea of analysis, but some of the idea should be on the, um, some of the emphasis should be on the idea of self. That is, that each person is looking into him or herself to see, um, do I really believe or not? And the question, will my neighbor be saved? The question, do I belong to a church that will be saved? That's a far more secondary question because it's each individual who is concerned about his or her own fate. Um, so that when you get a move in Dunn, um, as in um, at the Round Earth's Imagine Corners, when he says, but if above all these my sins abound, um, and let me mourn a space, um, let them sleep and let me mourn a space, he's turning from the whole population of the world 
to the question of his own soul, of his own individual soul. And the individuality that he is, um, that he is now focusing on, that becomes um, the beginning of a very, very powerful kind of um, modern self-analysis, modern um, um, meditation about one's own self, the um, meditator meditating on the very meditation he or she is undertaking. Um, and so one other thing, and then, then we'll stop with the, with the um, very quick outline here, um, but there's an argument in Protestantism and an argument between Protestantism and Catholicism about predestination, um, technically what's called double predestination. Um, so predestination is um, a view that Luther held and that Calvin held much more strongly um, that is counter to good works. Um, that is, it's a view that um, makes good works meaningless in a sense, not actually meaningless, but meaningless in a very primal sense. Um, because what predestination says is that nothing you can do will affect your fate nothing you can do will affect your fate. Um, you will go to heaven if God decided at the beginning of the universe that you would go to heaven, and you will go to hell if God decided at the beginning of the universe that you would go to hell. Yeah? Is that because they believe you have like no free will, so you're going to act in that way? Or do they just think no matter how you act, you're going to heaven or you're not going to heaven? Well, so one way of reconstructing the argument is to say that... Um, predestination has to do with what will happen to you, but there's a way in which it seems ridiculously unfair that you might actually be a really good person, um, but because you're predestined to go to hell, um, you'll go to hell. So you can um, work out that, well, if people don't have free will, then um, if they're predestined to go to hell, um, they will also act in such a way that they will um, not do good yeah, things. That's what I was asking. Yeah. Is, that, is it, that the idea of it, or is it that like? Oh, it, de it depends. It thought. depends who you read and and um, and. But th these are these are arguments. These are hard. Um, the, <coughs> these are hard and unsettling arguments. Yeah. Um, I mean, you can go very deeply into them. I'll say a little bit more, but just... I mean, isn't that another way, uh, might have been what you were going to say, to interpret mm -hmm. it, that from the view of, of biblical scholars and stuff, it's, it's a way to, you know, if someone is good then and goes to heaven, of saying, oh, well, God said they were going to go to heaven, just sort of reinforcing God's infallibility rather than actually having a, a structured plan to taking credit after the fact. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, that, that's one way of seeing it. Um, so there's, I mean, just to give you a sense of the various ways this can go, um, there's one group of Protestant believers who are called antinomians, um, and uh, they, this is a little bit after our period, I, I mean, after Herbert and Dunn, or certainly after Dunn and, and a bit after Herbert, but the antinomian idea is that you can't, the, the basic idea is, look, no one can follow the law. Um, once Adam sinned, it's impossible to do enough good works to be worth salvation. 
even if you devoted your life to saintly good work every second of your life, that one time that you were um, six months old and um, pushed your mother away, that brings you below the surface of the goodness you would have to have in order to be saved. In other words, um, the best we can hope for is to get to zero after Adam's sin. If we live a perfect life, a perfectly sinless life, then we wouldn't be in the negative space anymore, but we wouldn't be in positive space. We wouldn't be worth saving, but at least we wouldn't have sinned. Um, but, of course, no one can live a perfectly sinless life. So it's not that, you know, I've done more good things than bad things, which is how we'd like some of us at any rate. Some of us, uh, maybe not. Um, but how we'd like to see the accounts. Um, you know, well, I saved three lives but killed two people. But, you know, that's a net plus, right? <laughs> um, you know, think of, think of uh, murderous doctors. But what about all the lives I saved before I started killing my patients? Um, you know, I, I really did save all those people. And then, you know, you kill four people and they arrest you. It's not fair. Um, so um, most people casually would like to think that if, they're, if they do more good deeds than bad deeds, that's a good thing and, and they'll be saved. Um, but the really um, strenuous idea is um, no matter how much good you do, you can't do enough good to have a positive ledger. Um, because you're starting out through original sin in the territory of sin. And um, if you don't make any single mistake ever in your life from the moment you're born till the moment you die, um, then maybe you will get back to zero, but that's the best you can do. And of course, no one except Jesus himself can live that way. Um, so um, the antinomian idea then is we're all sinners, and we are all stenches in the nostril of God. Um, and so the good thing about that is there's nothing you can do that's really worse than what you're doing anyhow. That is that just by virtue of being a human being, what you do, you know, you're just terrible. Um, being human means you're terrible. And you're not that much worse if you go around um, having sex with everyone you meet and being drunk all the time and um, um, doing unspeakable things. Um, we're all like that. So, if, you know, think of Helen, Helen Brimstone's sermons. You know, Jonathan Edwards very famously, sinner you hang by a slender thread. You know, and everything you do is a stench in the nostril of God. And, you know, when, when, you, when you wake up and, and you think about your bodily functions because it's been 12 hours, you're not thinking about God. And that's just awful. So you can imagine someone saying, well, if it's that awful that I have to pee when I wake up, if that's a stench in the nostrils of God, you know... Um, and Jonathan Edwards is saying, you know, nothing, can, nothing worse than that can be imagined. Well, fine. You know, as long as that's going to happen anyhow, I may as well have fun. Um, and um, the, so the antinomians took the view that since salvation or damnation was predestined, since God couldn't change it because he decided at the beginning of the universe, at the beginning of the world, what was going to happen to you, um, you may as well 
get in as much pleasure as you can since it's not going to affect the outcome. Um, so the antinomians um, basically led very wi wild, dissolute lives um, on the assumption that it wouldn't matter and that they'd either go to hell or go to heaven no matter what they did, so have a good time since it's not going to matter. So that's one extreme view is the antinomian view that since works don't matter, you don't have to pay any attention or whatever to work, to, to what you do. The other view, and this is much more common, is um, a kind of confirmatory view, which is you're worried about whether you're going to be saved or damned. You believe that certain people are predestined to be saved. You also believe that such people are predestined to be saved because they are constituted as good people. That is, that God does save the better sort and damn the worse sort, even though we all deserve damnation except for Christ's redemption. That God does save the better sort and damn the worse sort. So you worry about, well, what are you? What kind of person are you? And um, one way to decide what kind of person you are is to look at the kinds of things you do. And one way to to like what you see when you look at the kinds of things that you do is to do good things so that you do good work you, you do good works you give to charity you um, um, help old people across the street um, you um, don't steal from the collection box um, not because you think doing any of those things would affect your future, but because seeing that you're a kind of person who does those things makes you more confident that you are going to be saved, that God has predestined you to salvation. So what you're trying to do is give yourself evidence that you'll be saved. And here the idea, here just wait for this idea because okay. this is an important one. Here the idea is that if you give yourself evidence that, you want, that you're going to be saved, the reason you're giving yourself that evidence is that you must believe that you're predestined to one thing or another. You give yourself evidence because you have that belief, but if belief means salvation, that is that salvation by faith or salvation by belief, that's what gets you saved then the fact that you have shown yourself that you believe because you're worried about whether you believe, that itself is a sign that you do believe. So if you can, if you can convince yourself that you're really worried about it, which you can do if you're worried about whether you're really worried about it, then you can believe that you're saved, as long as you don't believe it too much, because then you'll stop worrying, and that should be what makes you worry. Um, so there's a huge spiral of inwardness. That's the point. There's a huge paradoxical spiral of inwardness. Okay, go. Okay, sorry. Thank you. Um, but just think, it's as evil a thing you're... <laughs> All right. <laughs> um, answering a cell phone. Um, okay, so that spiral of inwardness um, and that individuation of... Um, experience of belief, of faith, of um, fate, 
that individuation of, uh, individuation of those things, that's really powerful and sharp um, among the Protestant poets, among the explicitly Protestant poets. Um, I'll give you one more example, to, to, and this is partly following up on what, what Daniel and Jesse were asking. Um, so in the book of Exodus, um, Moses says to um, Pharaoh, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, no, um, like having you guys as slaves. And then Moses calls a plague down upon Egypt. And the plague is appalling. Um, the rivers turn into blood. Locusts eat all the crop. It's night all the time. Um, terrible things are happening. And every time there's a plague, Pharaoh says, OK, you win. You can go. And then the line in Exodus says, Moses and, and the children of Israel decided to go. But then God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And he changed his mind. And the line, the repeated line in Exodus is, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So Luther is commenting on this. Martin Luther, who's the founder of modern Protestantism, um, is commenting on this. And for him, that's the place, or one of the places, to look at the idea of predestination and no free will. That is, Pharaoh wanted them to go, but God decided to have Pharaoh change his mind. It's not that Pharaoh was some independent person who changed his mind. No, the Bible says God said to Pharaoh, no, now you're going to stop them from going. So Pharaoh has some kind of independent impulse to let them go, and God um, intervenes to change that impulse so that they don't go. So this raises that question about predestination, which is, um, if you don't have free will, that is, um, if you do good things because God decided at the beginning of time you would be saved, if you do bad things because God decided at the beginning of time you would be damned, if, therefore, God determines you to do good things in order to save you as he's decided he would do, and determines you to do bad things in order to damn you, because that's what he decided he would do, how is that fair? That's the question. And Luther says, look at the story of Pharaoh to see exactly how hard a question this is. That is that Pharaoh wants to do the right thing, and God actually reprograms him, we would now say, to do the wrong thing so that God can punish him over and over again. So Pharaoh says, yes, go. It's fine. And God says, not so fast, and forces Pharaoh, his kind of marionette, now to say, actually, don't go. But God is forcing him to say that. And um, then Pharaoh gets punished again. And it happens over and over again until Pharaoh and the Egyptian nobility are killed in the Red Sea. That seems kind of evil. Sorry? That seems kind of like mean, like evil. Shh, 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 shh. <laughs> it's fine, it's fine. Uh, um, yes, it does seem that way. Um, it, so it's a real issue. It's a real issue for Luther. 
So Luther calls this incomprehensible, is his word. Not evil, but incomprehensible. He says, it is impossible to understand how this can be just. That God would determine our wills and then punish us for what he's determined. And then Luther, um, in you know, what may be the most difficult thing to accept in his doctrine, Luther basically says, this just shows how limited human beings are because it's obvious that God is perfectly good and just. We know that. God does this, therefore it has to be perfectly good and just that he does it. To us it seems unjust and evil and incomprehensible, and that just shows that we are limited beings and that it is arrogant of us to think that we can understand what justice is on our own, since when we try to understand what justice is on our own, we come to the conclusion that God seems evil. And um, because God can't be evil, it must be the case that our attempts to understand justice, this is what Luther calls the doctrine of glory, the glory of God's justice, that our attempts to understand it are beyond our limited capacities and we must give up trying to understand it. So Luther basically says you can't understand what God is doing from his point of view, why what he's doing is just, but it is just. Um, it's just because he's God. And, but we can't understand it, no question about that, and that should make us humble. Not understanding why what God does is good rather than evil, not understanding what makes it good rather than evil, should not make us question God, it should make us question ourselves. That's Luther's argument. Now that's a pretty hard argument for most people to swallow. Um, that is, God seems to be doing something which is demonstrably evil, um, or, or, you know, just, just obviously axiomatically evil. Um, but he does it, and therefore it must be good, and therefore our view of what's good and what's evil has to be corrupt and wrong. Um, now that is hard partly because Luther really does want us to rely on our own consciences in interpreting what God says, and yet here's a place where our conscience goes exactly against what God is saying, and Luther says, so take that as a warning. That is, it's not only your conscience, it's your conscience in trying to reconcile your life to what God demands of you. And you have to also accept those demands without question. You can question yourself, but you can't question God. So that leads to a lot of very hard self-questioning because people are trying to question themselves um, about their own deepest intuitions as to what justice is and what it isn't. Um, now, the poets that we're looking at, and Herbert is a good example of this, and Dunn, Dunn is another one, but the poets that we're looking at are actually trying to figure out ways um, to believe in their own belief and to believe in um, their concern for God and for um, the sacrifice, and this is the crucial thing, for the sacrifice that God made 
by allowing himself or one person of the divinity to become human and to die and to be crucified. Um, and that sacrifice, if you think about it, the belief, at least it's the way some of them think about it, the belief has to be something like, um, it's not that God did this thing and whoever believes will be saved, um, but he did it once and for all for all of humanity. It's rather for the belief to apply to you. You really have to believe that he sacrificed himself for you. For you singular, not for you plural. He sacrificed himself for others too, but that's not relevant to what he did for you. He did it for you, oh, and also for people like you, but the people they're like are people like you. So in order to believe that Christ's sacrifice um, can redeem you, you have to, you really do have to believe that it can redeem you. And you have to therefore get a sense, you have to really understand what that sacrifice is. And to the extent that you think it's history, you're not thinking that it was a sacrifice for you and you're not really believing in it. You're just seeing it as a historical event. To the extent that you believe that it was you that he sacrificed himself for, then you can believe it. Now, the way Herbert will do this, and I think this is the best way into it, is essentially he says, he doesn't say it in redemption, although it's hinted at in redemption, and this is therefore something to um, be aware of when we get to the last line of redemption, but what he basically says is it's excruciating to God, again, with that sense of the crucifix, of the cross, it is excruciating to God to be rejected. That is any non-believer, it's not that you're a stench in the nostrils of God, which is the fire and brimstone way of putting it, but it's rather that God suffers every time someone doesn't believe. God su Sorry? I said like Tinkerbell. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and that that suffering, the way Herbert is going gonna, is gonna to use the, um, a kind of conceptual pun in the word member, not in this poem, but um, in one of the affliction poems. So the idea is that you're a member of the church, um, that the church is made up of its members. Um, as the American Express ad puts it, membership has its privileges. Um, in the case of the church, membership has its um, sorrows but that um, you're a member of the church. And what the word member means is a limb, a part of, as in arms and legs. Um, those are the members of a body. Um, and it's not, um, we say um, somewhat metaphorically that you know, if you're a member of a club, it means you're part of the population of people who belong to the club. Um, but it's actually more accurate to say that um, as a member of the club, you are one of its working um, um, appendages, one of the things that the club works through. You are, you are an out, 
an outcropping of the club. The club is its members, but not as a group, not as a set, but rather as things that operate um, for the club or that the club operates through. Um, so it might be better to think of a member of a team rather than a member of a club or a member of an institution. A member of a team has to do stuff, you know, has to throw the ball to first. It's not that, oh, yeah, I belong to the Red Sox. Isn't that cool? Um, being a member of the Re of Red Sox Nation is not the same thing as being a member of the Red Sox. If you're a member of the Red Sox, you have a task to do for the team, just as your arms and legs have tasks to do for the body. So when... Um, so what Herbert will do with this is to talk about the church as being like Christ himself. That is, that um, a member of the church who suffers, any individual, any member of the church who suffers, that's like Christ suffering in one of his members, in his arms or legs, when he's nailed through his hands and feet. So our suffering is his suffering, and our disbelief is also his suffering, insofar as we are members of the church. So Christ suffers in his members every day. It's not that he suffered once and for all in Golgotha when he was crucified. It's that every time a member of the church suffers, Christ is suffering in that member in that arm or leg of himself he's suffering. That's what Herbert says. So Herbert puts it as um, those who praise one um, um, what is it? Those who praise one loss I think um, thou dying daily praise thee to thy cost. So Herbert's view is that Christ dies daily every time any human being dies because we are his members. Um, so that idea individuates the crucifixion. Jesus dies daily for us because he became human like us, became one of us, so that um, every sin we commit is torture to him every sorrow we feel is sorrow to him and therefore what we have to do to understand the crucifixion have faith in it to have true faith in it is to understand that we are both the cause and the experience of his suffering our suffering is his suffering and we are the cause of his suffering. And if we understand that, if we understand his suffering through our own and our suffering through his, then we have salvation. Yeah? It seems like this concept is such a deep and philosophical concept that's just like, just ambiguous enough that you don't get it, but you believe in it. Yeah, nice. So like deep. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, it's like a, such a strong guilt trip that oh, yeah. Yeah, no, it's absolutely a strong guilt trip. Um, and that's one of the things that you're going to find. Again, I mean, you see it in Dunn already. That is that um, what he's, you know, ode vex me, contraries meet in one. 
you know, it's it's precisely that. But also at the round earth of Mansion Corners, um, what he's saying is, um, um, I want salvation right now because the sooner the last judgment comes, the better. Um, all true believers want the last judgment to come as soon as possible so that this world of sin comes to an end. And then he says, no, but wait. It's too soon. If it happens now, I'll be too guilty. So you should want salvation immediately, and yet you should want time to repent um, because you're too guilty for salvation to come immediately. That's going to happen over and over again. The result for poetry and for um, a sense of selfhood is the extent to which it um, pushes you into really, really deep um, explorations of your own soul. But so anyhow, this is a little bit of background for redemption. So here, we, here the poem is again, having been tenant long to a rich lord, not thriving, I resolved to be bold and make a suit unto him to afford a new small rented lease and cancel the old. So um, theologically, the Old Testament, the old lease, um, the old covenant with God, which is if you follow my commandments, um, um, then um, uh, I will love you. Um, it's too hard to follow those commandments. I wasn't thriving under the lease that I had. Um, it was, he wanted so much from me and I just couldn't give it to him. Um, so, so the commandments of God the idea that if you just do what God wants you to do, everything will be hunky-dory is fine if you can do it. But if it's just too hard to do, and, and in this case, according to um, the new covenant, it's impossible. If it's too hard to do, um, then you're going to feel terrible. You're going to feel damned. So the speaker, like a farmer, says to his lord, like a tenant farmer, it's too hard, the terms. I can't pay you back. The terms are ruinous. Um, please give me a better deal. So he goes and asks for a better deal. You know, it's like, it's like renegotiating your mortgage. He goes and asks for a better deal. So he goes to heaven because the Lord is rich, so he's at his manor. In heaven at his manor I him sought. As soon as you get to in heaven, you know that this is a religious poem. That is, the first four lines could be any kind of narrative poem. Um, it could be, we could be reading a Trollope novel. Um, mm -hmm. And it doesn't, ha it, we could be reading a Jane Austen novel. I mean, we couldn't really, but it could be that world. Um, that is, we don't know yet that it's a religious poem. But as soon as he says in the first two words of stanza two, in heaven, we know who this rich lord is. In heaven at his manor I him sought. They told me there, and there's a good question, there's an interesting question, who's the they? Who told him? Um, we might quickly say, you know, angels or um, something like that. But in some sense, what it means is they're servants who don't really know what the master is up to. Whether those servants are angels or not doesn't matter that much. Herbert is very interested, as you'll see, in the fact that in Genesis, God says, let us make man in our own image. And the question is, who is this us in Genesis? Let us make man in our own image. Um, who's God talking to when he says that? Um, 
the standard answer is it's the royal we, but God never talks that way, or almost never talks that but way. Like the Trinity. Um, that's another possible answer. What did you say? The Trinity. Oh, the Trinity. Um, so that's another possible answer. But it's a puzzle in Genesis. It's also a puzzle, those of you who know Hebrew, that the word for God in Genesis, anyone know what it is? No, that's a word for the Lord. Um, when you see Yahweh in Hebrew, um, that gets translated as in English as the Lord, um, in French as le Seigneur. That is literally Lord. Um, that is the, the person who gives commandments. Um, and in Hebrew, actually, as Adonai. You're not supposed to say Yahweh, but it's Adonai, which also means the Lord, um, the boss, Lord as in boss, um, Lord of the manor. Um, but what about God? When you say, you know, sometimes you get the Lord God in Genesis, sometimes you, you get, and God said unto Moses, speak unto the children of Israel. Um, sometimes you get, the Lord said unto Moses, speak unto the children of Israel. Sometimes you get, and Jacob wrestled with a man all night and then said to his brother Esau, I saw God last night. Um, sometimes it will be, um, and the Lord told Jacob to cross the river Jordan. Um, that's, do people know this distinction? It's a crucial distinction in um, the uh, first four books of the Bible. Deuteronomy is another, is another issue. But in the first four books of the Bible, you will sometimes have the Lord and sometimes have God and sometimes have both, um, the Lord God. Um, and um, the basic idea is that, they, that they're two different sets of stories that get combined in the Bible. Stories about a deity named Yahweh, and those are often called the J stories, um, J being the English or modern um, letter for the Yud of Yahweh, yud heh vav um, And those are the J stories, and they're thought to be a little bit older than the stories about God, many of which are very similar to those stories. So they're fairly easy to braid in with each other to combine, but there are also contradictions between them, and those contradictions, um, the most famous one is, or the first one is very famous, which is that um, God, that the Lord, um, that God creates Adam and Eve, I mean, sorry, God creates man, um, in the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. And he breathed life into his nostrils. So there's a story at the, in the first chapter of Genesis. Chapters, by the way, are only page length. They're not, they're not original. Um, but there's a story at the very beginning of Genesis about how God created um, man in both sexes. Then there's a story a little bit later about how God created Adam and then caused Adam to go to sleep and took his rib out and uh, made a woman out of it um, named Eve. Now, most people, naive readers, will say, oh, yeah, that's just more detail. But in fact, they're two different stories of the creation of humanity. In one, God creates male and female simultaneously. In the other story, a male is created named Adam. He is then um, alone, and the Lord says it's not good for him to be alone, and takes a rib out and forms it into Eve, and now he's got a help meet. Um, so those are two different stories. Um, do people know who Lilith is? is a familiar name to anyone? Adam's first wife? Yes. So Lilith is a Kabbalistic um, story. 
Um, Lilith is now a, a feminist um, um, symbol, but the according to the Kabbalah and then also to, to some of the legends about the meaning of the Bible, what happened was Eve was actually not the first woman, that God did create a male and a female, um, and that female was named Lilith. Adam's first wife was named Lilith, not Eve. And um, that Adam and Lilith couldn't get along, in particular because Lilith didn't believe in only having sex in the missionary position because she didn't believe that men were above women, that women were subordinate to men. So the reason she's become a feminist symbol is that the stories are that she demanded equality. Adam complains to God. God says, you're right, it's ridiculous. She's just a woman. Um, here, I'll get rid of her. She can marry Satan or Samael, um, which she then does. And I'll create a woman who will realize who's boss. Um, and so he creates Eve out of Adam's rib. So that's, that's part of the legend, part of the, part of the esoteric legends that arose out of this contradiction at the very beginning of the Bible. What are the origins of those legends? They're, well, they're, they're legends about everything. Um, some people call them, you know, they're the, essentially, it's not, it's an answer which isn't an answer, an answer to say it's the oral tradition or an oral tradition. Yeah. So there's no historical, like... Oh, no, they found can't. Lilith and... No. no, no, I mean, like, you know, the, these originally sprang from, like, a, a reading of the Bible in... No, they have to do with people asking questions and the rabbis giving answers okay. and mystics saying that they saw answers and heretical um, splits, um, you know, Kabbalistic doctrine. Kabbalah is the esoteric mystical tradition in um, Judaism, and it comes out of Gnosticism um, and is a strong counter to received and orthodox views. And there are mystics always. Every religion has mystics. And the mystics believe that they know the truth that the Orthodox um, have misapprehended. It's not so important for us, although it is a little bit important for Milton. But the crucial thing here is that, the, that Lilith, like um, the man moth in Elizabeth Bishop, um, Lilith comes out of a textual problem. And so what happens is they're legendary beings. This is actually the history of, of almost every tradition that becomes written down is that you get legendary beings that arise out of textual problems. In Shelley's poem, Prometheus Unbound, there's a character, Demogorgon. Um, and Demogorgon is actually thought to be, Shelley calls him Demogorgon, a tremendous gloom. And he is um, thought to be the kind of king of the underworld. And there are other writers who talk about Demogorgon without quite knowing who he is, but he's scary and, and powerful and fateful. And Demogorgon turns out to be a misprint for Demiurge, which is a, um, a figure from Plato. Um, so these misprints arise, and suddenly traditions and stories arise about them, but they, they owe their existence to um, some, some scholarly mistake. Some scribe makes a mistake, writes the wrong name down, or writes down um, a word that hasn't appeared. There's a misspelling, and the misspelling turns into a, a, a complete legendary being. So be careful when you type. Um, <laughs> and there is this Elizabeth Bishop poem, wonderful poem called The Man Moth, um, really a wonderful poem in which she writes about the man moth, who's this sort of frightened figure um, uh, 
um, who rides the subways and looks at the third rail as unbroken draft of poison, and he wants to climb up to the moon, which he thinks is a hole in the sky. But the title of the poem is The Man Moth Asterisk. And if you look at the bottom of the page, it's Newspaper Misprint for Mammoth. So she's reading a newspaper, and the, the, there's a misprint saying, you know, and this... And the skeleton of this man moth was found in, in Montana. Um, and she thought, man moth. And then <laughs> wrote a poem about it. Um, so so what, was the, what was the word for God in the Bible? So the word for God is, the, this is called the E tradition. So we talk about the J writer who writes about Yahweh mm-hmm. um, and who Harold Bloom has made a strong argument um, uh, that the J writer was a woman living in the court of King David. And the E writer, who's a little bit later, uses the Hebrew for God, which is Elohim. So sometimes if you know Hebrew, you know that uh, blessing will go, Baruch ato Adonai Eloheinu Melech Olam, which means blessed, Baruch ato art thou, Adonai, or Yahweh, O Lord, Eloheinu, our God. So when you talk about the Lord, our God, that's Adonai Eloheinu. But the crucial thing about Elohim, which is the subject, um, so Elohim did this, Elohim did that, is that it's a plural noun. Literally translated, it would be the gods. Not God, but the gods. But usually in the Hebrew Bible, it takes a singular verb. So in Hebrew, you will get something like the gods says unto Moses. The gods decides to punish Moses. So it's a plural noun but a singular verb and in translations and in people's thought because what we get is in the Shema, the most important prayer in the Jewish tradition is hear O Israel the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Literally it's the Lord our gods the Lord is one. And the one is what triumphs over everything else. It's the monotheism of the one. So you say God is somehow a plurality who is also a singularity, and the singularity is what matters. But in the beginning of Genesis, you actually get the plural verb, not let me make man in my own image, the gods says, but let us, plural, make man in our own image, the gods said. so that plurality is, again, you get a kind of contradiction. But that plurality is precisely what Herbert is, is um, pushing here. So he goes to heaven, and there are people there. Uh, we have a minute. Um, there are people there, but they told me there that he, the singular, was lately gone about some land, which he had dearly bought long since on earth to take possession. So he had dearly bought it. How? By being crucified. And now... Having paid for it through his crucifixion, he's gone to earth to take possession. So we think it's the end of time. That is, he was crucified. Now he's going to take possession of his lands on earth, and it's the time of the apocalypse, and that's good. I straight returned. I went right back before it was too late. And knowing his great birth, he's God. I sought him accordingly in great resorts, in cities, theaters, gardens, parks, and courts. Now, part of the experience of this poem is we have three lines left, and he still hasn't been able to make his suit, and the poem is hurtling towards its end. At length, I heard a ragged noise and mirth, but what's going to happen? There's two lines left to solve this problem. 
he's used 12 lines and he still hasn't found the Lord. You know, it's like trying to find Oz, the Wizard of Oz, um, and there's a line left in the story. At length I heard a ragged noise and mirth of thieves and murderers. There I him espied. He's with the poor and the downtrodden, like Pope Francis. There I him espied, who's straight. Your suit is granted. I didn't even have to ask. As soon as I saw him, he said, your suit is granted, because I was looking for him, and died. That is not that he took possession of the earth. I saw him, and he said, your suit is granted, and died. So when did he die? When he dearly bought it long since on earth? Or right now? And the answer is yes. For me, I understood at that moment that he, I thought things were hard on me, but here he was among the thieves and murderers, and he died. And, but as he died, he gave me what I needed. And so he was a bet, you know, he's a better man than I am, Ganga did. Um, that's what I realized. But his death at that moment came home to me. He died for me, not for us, for me at that moment. And that's what I had to understand. And that's how I got redeemed. So the death that's dying daily, that's what Herbert is always saying. OK, we will get to songs and sonnets and no religion on, on uh, Friday. So um, and I'll, what I'll do is I'll, I have a sense that we're going slower. <laughs> we're, we're already three <laughs> weeks behind, and it's only the second week in class. Um, but I'll um, come up with the, I'll, I'll basically give you a set of readings for about the next three weeks, and I'll send it out on latte. Uh, yeah, I was, I was going to say, I was, I was having trouble like, seeing the syllabus on latte. Yeah, it's not on latte. That's why you're having trouble. Um, but I will, I will at least put up the next three weeks, um, in the next day or so.